From WCAI in Woods Hole and WGBH Radio Boston, this is Living Lab Radio. I'm Heather Goldstone. Last year, the Parker Solar Probe flew closer to the sun than anything ever has before. Now scientists have released the first results, and there are some big surprises. Solar winds up to 25 times faster than expected and previously unknown rogue waves. Joining me now to explain is Nicolene Vial. She is a research scientist with the Solar Physics Laboratory at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center. Welcome to the show. Hello. So the sun is our closest star, but because it is so hot, it is also one of the least studied bodies in our solar system. What were some of the outstanding questions that the Parker mission set out to answer? So the solar atmosphere is incredibly hot. It's millions of degrees, which is hundreds of times hotter than the photosphere, which is the visible surface of the sun. That's like if you were walking away from a fireplace and it got hundreds of times hotter. Hmm. So we know the magnetic field is involved with it, but we don't quite know how that happens. So that's one of the things that Parker is investigating is this hot corona, this hot solar atmosphere, which then expands outwards and fills our whole solar system with what we call the solar wind. So in order to answer that question, Parker was trying to get as close to the sun as it could. It's been said it touched the sun. How close did it actually get? So we've gone closer than ever before, closer than Mercury's orbit. Uh, We continue to use Venus's gravity to help us get even closer to the sun in future orbits. The closest approach we're going to have will be 4 million miles from the surface of the sun. So by comparison, the distance from the Earth to the sun is 93 million miles. So this is about 4% of the distance between the sun and the Earth is how close the Parker Solar Probe is going to get to the sun. It will touch the solar atmosphere. That's really the part of the sun that it's touching. And how hot is it there? Millions of degrees. Uh, the heat actually is not what we're worried about directly. It's the the sun's light that we're worried about. That's what our heat shield on the Parker hmm. Solar Probe protects us from is the sun's light because the density is actually very low. So it's sort of like when you stick your hand in an oven and you don't get burnt, even if the oven is 500 degrees, unless you touch the side. It's, right. The air is actually low density. So it's kind of like that. So how do you actually engineer a spacecraft to be able to withstand, first of all, the cold of space and then that kind of intense heat. Yeah, in fact, it is hard to do that. We had to wait for technology to catch up with our ideas. The idea to fly a probe to the sun predates NASA's existence, in fact. Hmm. Uh, This has always been something we've thought would be a good idea, but it took a while for technology to catch up. Um, Exactly as you said, we've got to make sure not to melt when we get close to the sun and the intense solar radiation is beating down. So we've got this heat shield. It's four inches thick. It's made of carbon foam, and it keeps the instruments behind it at about room temperature. And we have lots of testing that all of the instruments undergo to make sure that they can survive both the hot and cold of space. Well, that's some insulation that I want in my house. If it can keep it room temperature when it's the temperature of the sun outside. I mean, the the other thing with Parker is not only is it withstanding this this heat and cold, but it is moving incredibly fast, over 153,000 miles per hour. I mean, what kind of data can it even collect at that speed? 
Well, we can collect lots of data, and we do take into account the fact that we are moving through the material as opposed to um, being still in the material. That actually helps us sample more of the material. Uh, but Parker Solar Probe is already the fastest human-made object ever. And as we spiral in closer to the sun, we get faster and faster and faster. And in fact, the fastest we will go is a half a million miles an hour, which is wow. incredibly fast. Yeah. That that is in and of itself amazing. So, Nicolene Vial, the the actual uh, flybys that the new data has come from happened uh, last April and November, but these first results, the first analysis, is now out. So, what has Parker been seeing? Well, Parker is seeing this solar wind, this plasma, this material from the solar atmosphere that expands out into the solar system. It's seeing that up close as it just forms. So that means we get to see structures and variability and complexity that we had hints of before, but now we really get to see it in its full detail up close right after it was made. So that's really cool. That tells us about how the solar wind is made. We also get to see explosions, uh, coronal mass ejections, and energetic particle events we call that space weather sometimes. And when those big energy events get to the Earth, they cause things like the northern lights, the aurora borealis. That's a beautiful thing that it causes. But it can also mess with the ionosphere, uh, interfere with our GPS signals, interfere with our radio signals. It can fry power grids. And if you're an astronaut outside of our protective atmosphere and outside of our protective magnetic field, uh, that radiation can actually... Um, harm spacecraft and astronauts. So is what Parker is learning likely to, say, help with uh, the, f the forecasts of that space weather that we do hear about when we, you know, we say, oh, uh, you know, a, a solar storm is coming, you know, you may have outages in your electronics or your GPS. Could that get better because of Parker? Exactly. Yeah. Parker Solar Probe has been able to see these energetic uh, events right after they're made and smaller ones than we've ever been able to see before, which helps us understand better the physics of how they're generated, how that energy gets into the particles and makes them go so fast they are approaching the speed of light. Wow. So Parker has uh, brought some surprises uh, in, in this first batch of data, one of them being that these solar winds you were talking about, you know, watching as the solar wind is produced, um, seeing solar winds 15 to 25 times faster than expected. First of all, how do you measure how fast the solar wind is moving and, and what does it mean that it's so much faster than we thought before? The cool thing about Parker Solar Probe is we're actually sticking, it's like sticking a thermometer into this material. And so that's how we measure the temperature. And then we can also measure the particles and how fast they come into the spacecraft tells us how fast they're going. So we directly measure that. And uh, it's so cool there that there are, there are these little bursts of solar wind. There's sort of no such thing as a quiet day on the sun. Even the quietest days on the sun, there are still all of these bursts of solar wind that come out. And we had hints that they were there before, but now we're seeing them sort of in their full glory and their full complexity and their full, um, you know, as big as they really are when they first come off the sun. Hmm. And you mentioned even on a quiet day on the sun. I mean, the, the sun has been in a, a relatively quiet phase. How has that affected what Parker has been able to see or how you interpret what Parker has seen? 
Yeah, so the sun goes through these approximately 11-year solar cycles, we call them. It's activity cycles. The magnetic field has a lot of energy bursts, and then it will have fewer of these energy bursts, these solar storms. Right now we're in a solar minimum, but the sun still has these energy bursts. And so what that means is we can study the individual um, energetic particle events, the individual coronal mass ejections, these individual explosions, and really understand them. And Parker will continue to measure the sun as it picks up its uh, in its intensity cycle. And so we can study the bigger events and the, the complex interaction between the events later on in the mission. This first pass uh, has been about 15 million miles from the surface of the sun. You said it'll get as close as 4 million miles as it spirals inward around the sun. What kind of information does that give you about the processes that are generating these winds blowing out from the sun? Yeah, the solar wind is so cool. It's uh, one of the things that I study. And each time we get closer, we learn more and more about uh, how that solar wind was formed. There's different kinds of solar wind that are all formed in different ways. Um, and so they look different. Some of these energy bursts or these flips in the magnetic field might be one kind. There might be other kinds that have different signatures. And the closer we get to the process and the more of the different kinds of this solar wind we get to see, the more we can understand just the fundamental physical processes that are going on in our sun. When you say different types of solar wind, I mean, here on Earth, there are, you know, names for different winds that come down off of mountains or blow on shore, that kind of thing. But it's always air that is blowing around. When you say there are different types of solar wind, is that different types of particles or just different processes that are generating it? Oh, that's an excellent question. A little bit of both, we think. But we don't quite know. What we observe is sometimes it's faster or slower. Um, and also, we can look at some of the heavier elements. So the sun is mostly made of hydrogen. There's a little bit of helium and a little bit of trace, uh, carbon, iron, things like that. And the amounts of those trace elements, the iron, the carbon, does change in the different kinds of solar wind. And uh, that's one of the keys, one of the traces of some of these different processes. Nicolene Vial, you said earlier that one of the key questions that Parker set out to answer or or mysteries maybe that it was supposed to help explain is is why the sun's corona essentially its atmosphere gets warmer as you move away from it i love that analogy that you used of you know why it would get warmer as you walk away from a campfire what has parker contributed to our understanding of that phenomenon at this point yeah so we know that one of the reasons that the solar wind even exists, this plasma coming off of the sun, is because of this really hot atmosphere. Those two processes are connected, but they're sort of different steps in the physical process. So we're seeing some of the waves, we're seeing some of the little explosions of magnetic energy. We're seeing the remnants of that with Parker Solar Probe, and it's helping under us understand how those processes might also be happening lower down in the atmosphere. Hmm. I mean, given that some of this data coming back from Parker was so surprising, what does that say overall about our understanding of the sun? And what does that do to our understanding of the sun? Yeah, the data have just been so amazing. Every time we go to a new place, we learn something new. There have been two kinds of discoveries. I, there are things that we thought would probably be there, but we had no way to know for sure until we just went. And then there are other things that were kind of surprising. So... Um, the uh, 
the bursts in the solar wind, we kind of had hints that they would be there, but we had no idea what they would really look like and how big they would actually be. So I expect to see maybe even more and maybe even bigger of those as we get closer. Um, Another surprising result that Parker has seen is the solar atmosphere spins with the sun, but the solar wind does not spin with the sun. And Hmm. where that breakdown happens um, affects the sun over its lifetime. It'll drag the sun and slow it down eventually. And theoretically, where that should have occurred is not where Parker measured it to have occurred. So that has implications for how the sun spins down over time. And that also tells us about how other stars spin down over their lifetimes, because that process happens on other stars as well. That was going to be my next question, is what does Parker teach us about other stars? I mean, do we even know enough to know if the processes are the same between, you know, all these different stars, if we're looking at them from so far away, and if what Parker is telling us from up close is so different or surprising? Yeah, it's amazing. I really think we need to look at all of the information together. We have so much information about our sun and so many details of our sun, but there's only one of them. And so it's only, you know, you can't make the sun do something different than what it does. What we can do is look at all of the other stars in the universe and see what they are doing and how they are different and at different stages in their lifetime. And by putting all of that information together, we can get a better picture of how our universe works. I, I just have to ask, you You did say that what you've discovered through Parker so far affects the rate at which the sun spins down. No dramatic change to the expected life expectancy of the sun, right? No, 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 no. <laughs> no, we're good. <laughs> um, Plenty of time still uh, to explore yes, and yes, learn yes, more. we're good. <laughs> That's Nicolene Vial. She's a solar scientist at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center talking to us about the Parker Solar Probe. Nikki, thanks so much. Thank you. Quick break here. When we come back, we'll have an update on the first week of U.N. climate negotiations. Stay tuned. You're listening to Living Lab Radio. I'm Heather Goldstone. This year's U.N. climate conference, the 25th Conference of Parties, is underway in Madrid. Joining me now with an update on the first week of the meeting is Marcia Macedo of Woods Hole Research Center. She's an associate scientist there. Marcia, thanks for making the time to talk with us. It's my pleasure. So as a result of uh, previous Conference of Parties meetings, we have the Paris Climate Agreement, even though the U.S. is pulling out, that is still moving forward. What is the actual goal of this particular set of negotiations? What's actually going on at this point? Well, the negotiations begin in full next week. So the goal now, I think, is is to try to get real commitments from the remaining countries that haven't adhered to the, the Paris Climate Agreements and to really create a sense of urgency around the climate crisis. Urgency is kind of the theme of this meeting, um, down, right down from the logo to, you know, all of the, the kind of programming. I think a lot of what is being talked about right now is that even the countries that have set national targets and have ratified those, those targets are not enough and, and we're, not, we're not on track to, to meet the, the Paris climate goals or to, or to even start to see a decrease in global greenhouse gases. 
You mentioned the theme of urgency. I know this uh, conference of parties, this COP, as they're called, has been dubbed the Blue COP uh, with kind of an oceans and, and water theme. How has that cropped up in the first week of discussions? Well, I've been accompanying mostly the the Amazon and Brazil Climate Action Hub, and it has come up in several contexts there, uh, certainly the increase of drought in, in the region and beginning to see forest degradation as a result and water security issues coming up. And so that's a big topic of discussion in the civil society pavilion. I'm not part of the formal negotiations and, and Brazil is not actually here in, in uh, big numbers officially. So you mentioned that uh, Brazil's not there in large numbers. I'm curious about uh, the U.S. since, of course, um, President Trump has started uh, the process of formally withdrawing from the Paris Climate Agreement. Uh, what kind of U.S. presence uh, have you encountered so far? I have to say I, I'm in a, a unique position of being both Brazilian and American, and I'm actually quite disappointed with the, with the official delegations from, from both countries. Um, hmm. There has been some presence um, in the last week of, I think, Nancy Pelosi was here and, and a few other U.S. officials, but not a strong presence, certainly not the kind of leadership that we would hope to see from the U.S. at this point. And, and Brazil is, is moving in the same direction. Um, the Minister of Environment is here for part of the week, and there's a very reduced delegation of some, some of the more technical folks focused on agriculture and, and so forth. But really, from the Brazil perspective, um, which is what I've been accompanying more closely, uh, mostly civil society has come out in large numbers to, hmm. to try to serve as a counterpoint, I guess, to the government's position. Now, the location of this conference being in Madrid was a last-minute switch this fall after the president of Chile uh, said that his country would be unable to host this year due to political unrest. And that sparked some conversations about uh, colonialism, about the impacts of climate change on political systems and unrest around the globe. And I'm wondering if uh, any of those themes, I mean, tensions between uh, developed and developing rich and poor nations around the world have always been um, a major part of these UN negotiations. Has this switch in location uh, brought that to, to the surface any more or in different ways, do you think? Certainly the fact that it changed at the last minute made it so a lot of, a lot of people couldn't attend um, because of expense and just the logistics were very challenging. And, so, and, and I think that unfortunately really affected civil society organizations, indigenous groups, you know, other observers who are a very important part of the dialogue more than it affected official delegations. And in that sense, I think that the question that you raise about colonialism and, and so forth rings true. Um, one place that it has cropped up for me personally um, in my interactions with several indigenous leaders and the Brazilian delegation that is here uh, is, is that the, the indigenous space, I think, ended up in, in a position where it's very kind of marginalized and it's outside of the official space and, and kind of removed from some of the, the more traditional exhibit spaces. And so I, I have heard some complaints around that. But I've also found it very encouraging that, that those groups are finding ways to participate in many other venues and are really having their voices heard and being part of the dialogue in a way that, that I haven't seen before, at least in the Brazilian context.
Marcia Macedo, you are part of a delegation of scientists from Woods Hole Research Center that are um, at this UN meeting with a message for negotiators and really for the world that the world's carbon budget is running out. What, what does that actually mean? I mean, we know what it means when you know we've got a, a financial budget and we're running out of money, but what does it mean that the carbon budget is running out? In order to slow global climate change, we need to reduce the amount of, of carbon in the atmosphere. It's, it's going up and up and up and shows no sign of slowing down. Our scientific delegation was really bringing attention to two natural ecosystems that can play a big role in either mitigating or increasing those emissions. One is permafrost in the Arctic. We had a a big delegation uh, working in the cryosphere pavilion and, and raising awareness of the fact that as the earth warms, permafrost is thawing and could release massive amounts of carbon to the atmosphere that hasn't been accounted for. By the same token, I and a couple of colleagues were here to raise awareness of the importance of the Amazon rainforest for climate mitigation and maintaining climate stability, not only regionally in the Amazon, but but also globally. So the Amazon stores 10 years of global greenhouse gas emissions and is a really important regulator of regional climate um, by circulating water in the region and and around the world, so so that is that is a function that um, that we're trying to kind of shine a light on. Well, Marcia, we can hear that you're in the hall, and I know you're between events, so I don't want to keep you for too long. But I am just curious what your sense halfway through this COP with the uh, formal negotiations starting, um, you know, in the second week. What's the the mood there? Is there a sense of optimism, a sense of action that things are getting done, um, or or is there more, you know, concern and worry? I can speak for myself personally um, that uh, there is certainly a sense of concern and worry. It's urgency with concern. If you look at the uh, report card for where we are on the national targets that were supposed to be set as part of the climate agreements, we have countries that aren't participating or are threatening to pull out, and the countries that have committed, by and large, are, are not doing quite enough to get us where we need to be. And so that's, that's a real worry. I mean, the sense of urgency is palpable, and we're really hopeful that that can be converted into some real action and some real commitments. A mix of emotions, it sounds like. Best of luck. That's Marcia Macedo of the Woods Hole Research Center. She's there with a delegation of scientists trying to bring to the attention of negotiators some issues that have not been fully considered. Marcia, thank you so much. Thank you. This is Living Lab Radio. I'm Heather Goldstone. The Impossible Burger has put high-tech meat alternatives on people's plates and minds. But just how big could this emerging sector become, and how soon? A new analysis says it could make the cow all but obsolete in a matter of years. Catherine Tubb is a senior analyst with RethinkX, a think tank that focuses on tech-driven disruption and its implications for society. And she's the co-author of a new report on the future of food and agriculture. Catherine, welcome to the show. Hi there. So the upshot of this new analysis, and I'm I'm quoting from the summary, is by 2030, the number of cows in the U.S. will have fallen by 50 percent and the cattle farming industry will be all but bankrupt. That is a pretty strong statement. What is that based on? 
So we are a think tank that look at technology-driven disruptions. And what we've taken is a look at it from the technology. So we anticipate a this is a protein-driven disruption driven by economics. So essentially the cost of producing protein is going to come down fast so that it's five times cheaper by 2030 and 10 times by 2035 than existing methods. And so ultimately this means 50% fewer cows by 2030. And it won't stop there. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll talk about how much further it could go. But but let's take a step back and talk about this technology that, that you're basing this on, this protein production technology. If we're getting essentially meat, protein, that's not coming from animals, where is it coming from? So this is coming from, this is a technology that's been around since 1979, 1980s. It's how we produce insulin now, um, and rennet and other molecules, biologic um, pharmaceuticals, for example. And it's being driven really by kind of rapidly converging and technologies coming down in cost, which means that we've seen the cost of it coming down from about a million dollars per kilo to around a hundred dollars per kilo today. And we anticipate this will fall even further so that by 2025, it hits cost parity with dairy proteins, which is about $10 per kilo. And it's really at this point that when you hit the cost parity with dairy proteins, it becomes disruptive because many of these proteins are actually sold in an ingredient business to business way. Um, so what you'll see is about 30% of the US market, dairy market actually goes in as an ingredient into other products. And that is a, an area mm. where companies are very susceptible to kind of volatile prices and are always looking for ways to kind of cut their margins. And of course, then there's the upside in terms of the production. It uses far fewer resources. It can be produced anywhere. All those kind of things that make it even just better than you can produce with current animal proteins. Once you wipe out that 30% of demand, then you just wipe out what you need from cows. So for example, you've seen this with the bankruptcy of Dean Foods in the US. It's an industry that's operating on very financially vulnerable margins and it's very economically unsound, I would say. So it's very prone to disruption. Well, Catherine Tubb, this analysis um, that you and your colleagues have produced, that's one of the key points that you make is that cattle farming, because of uh, the, the total economics around cattle farming, Cattle farming, you predict, will collapse before we can make something like a steak, right? We're not talking about uh, phasing out cows because we have figured out how to replace everything that currently comes from cows, right? Yeah, so as we've gone down this cost curve, I mean, over the last hundred years, the way we used and before that, the first way we used a cow, it represented everything. It was a kind of source of labor, of food, of tools, of clothing, of even a way to store food and of value. And kind of as we've gone through time, every use of the cow has been taken away. So refrigerators, for example, disrupted the need to store your food in a cow. You know, and then also just labor. So things like tractors have taken away the need to use cows in terms of the field. And even money has taken away the use for cows as a source of trade value. Um, and really, food is kind of the final disruption. And then every part of food that you're seeing is also being disrupted. So it's, it's kind of all these different products that you're seeing on the market are all taking a little bit of the trunk out of the cow. We call it death by a thousand cuts. And I would say the one thing as well about the cow is we talk about a protein disruption across everything. It just happens that the cow is the most inefficient way of producing protein. And when you have a model as inefficient as the cow, that is prone to disruption. So, you know, this won't stop at the cow. You'll see every single livestock, fish also being disrupted by these technologies. When you say that a cow is the most inefficient way to produce protein, can you break that down and explain what that means? 
Yeah, I mean, there are many ways to look at look at it. The simplest way is just thinking about a feedstock. So, I mean, you hear many numbers. Um, I think anything from five to 25 times amount of feed needed to produce a, a kilo of protein. So, you know, that's essentially 4% efficient. Um, and that's if you think about an, uh, um, an ICE engine. So internal combustion engine is about 19 to 21% efficient. And that's also being disrupted by electric vehicles, mm. which have much more efficiency. So it's just an efficiency thing. If you can unplug these microbes that we that use it to make the products essentially you're taking a microbe like a yeast programming it to make these proteins um and you're just doing it in kind of fermentation tanks and vats you can do this anywhere right we'll have fermentation farms instead of animal farms but you can do it anywhere you can produce it anywhere anywhere you can brew beer you can make protein so let's talk about what you can make in that way at least right now i mean we've got things like the impossible burger where you're making kind of a ground meat replacement where do we stand in terms of getting to something more like a steak or a chicken breast, something that's actually a piece of meat? How far off might that be? So at the moment, in terms of the cost curve of precision fermentation, we're really at the level where you can make pro- products like collagen. So there's a company that currently sells human collagen actually for use in cosmetics. And of course, human collagen is better than for us to put on our faces than cow collagen, a company called Geltor in the US. Mm. Um, and then, you know, we're also seeing companies, a company called Spiber make um, spider silk that they use. They put in moon jackets and I think working with North Face to make use it as a, a material. Um, as we come down the curve, you've seen Impossible actually is a company that uses this technology to make their heme, which is kind of their secret sauce to make their burger. And they mix that with plant-based food. So we do see that the, the products that come on the market to begin with will be mixed with plant-based or myco, which is um, fungus-based products, in order to kind of make them better. I think the, the key area for us when it comes really disruptive is really when you reach that economic level, when it's at a cost parity with bulk proteins, animal proteins. And you're seeing companies already, so Clara Foods make egg whites and then Perfect Day have launched, they make dairy proteins and they've just launched an ice cream onto the market that I think mm. was available on a certain thing. And then also you're seeing a company called New Culture who make mozzarella cheese. So you can see, all, and all these companies are making it using the same technology, they're just making different proteins. It's not just limited to the food space, you're seeing company making indigo companies making vanilla a company even making rhino horn Mm. so these all have hugely disruptive kind of implications for their industries that they're in and you're just seeing a huge number of these startups coming into this space and more and more every day and though one thing or two things i guess that i didn't hear in that list of what's being made are the basics of milk eggs and and definitely not you know, steak or, or actually pieces of meat. We're, we're just not there yet with that technology, I guess. Well, one of the interesting things is that one of the key areas for cultured meat protein. So, I mean, if you mix these, the heme, for example, that Impossible make with plant-based, you can really mimic the taste and feel of uh, meat very well. Um, I think in terms of these proteins, they are actually... Um, for cultured meat, one of the key kind of costs, if that's also coming down its own cost curve, but one of the key high costs is actually the medium. Um, and you can make one of the things you need is proteins in the medium to help these cells grow. So which, of course, you can make using this technology called precision fermentation. So it all kind of feeds into each other. So essentially, once you can do one thing, it, it's almost experience curve. They all kind of feed into the others to keep going. So we don't think you're going to need to be able to make the meat because you're going to disrupt the rest of the industry. So it becomes an economic question. So once you take out the dairy industry, and I don't want the word take out is wrong, but once the dairy industry kind of becomes you know, economically unviable, and then 
that's going to feed into the meat industry because about 20% of meat actually comes from old dairy cows. So suddenly the price of meat is going to go up, of cows, for example, is going to go up. And then that's going to kind of happen, see new investment into these new technologies and drive it forward. We call it kind of feedback, virtuous feedback loops. Until really what happens is then that the old industry goes into this vicious feedback loop cycle where there's lower demand, lower supply, lower investment. And so eventually the new industry takes over. So we see them all feeding into each other. You won't need to be able to make that stake in order for the whole industry to be disrupted. I'm talking with Catherine Tubb of RethinkX, a think tank that focuses on tech-driven disruption, about a new analysis of the future of food and agriculture. In this new analysis, you predict severe economic impacts, and you've been kind of hitting on that in describing how the collapse of uh, cattle agriculture might proceed and what would drive that. What does that actually mean in hard numbers? What are severe economic impacts? the whole food system is going to change. So we're going to move to something we call food as software, which is the idea of this, where anyway, as I said, anyway, you can brew beer, you can make food, but this is going to have massive implications because at the moment, a lot of food production is very centralized in certain areas of the US, for example, and it's going to come very decentralized and delocalized. The inputs that you need for this technology are different to the ones we need now. So, you, I mean, if we argue that basically if you don't need the cow, then the whole of the industries around the cow are going to go away. And obviously that's going to have massive implications for those you know, areas of the country, of, of the world, really, that have those that use those animals. So this is where we kind of try as part of Rethink X and our, is the idea of trying to alert people to these huge implications and these huge changes that come much quicker than people expect because people usually underestimate how quickly these changes can happen. Um, and that's part of our what we're trying to do. We're trying to tell people, look, this is happening. This is inevitable. So where do you want to be in terms of this technology? You want to you know, protect the workers, not protect the jobs necessarily, but protect the workers. How are you going to protect people, protect you know, regions of the country, protect whole communities? communities that rely on these industries that just may not exist in 15 to 20 years. In addition to protecting the people who currently uh, farm cattle, I'm thinking about the people who currently rely on cattle for protein. I mean, you can make these proteins anywhere you can brew beer, but uh, that's not some of the poorest regions of the world where people Mm. may be subsistence farming. What does this mean for them? No, I mean, if if you're a subsistence farmer or you're someone that owns one cow, clearly you probably still own the cow. And I think a lot of regions of the world, such as Africa, they actually, you know, you still own a cow and it represents, it still uses dowries. So we're not saying that the cow is going to go away. <laughs> There's just going to be a lot less of them. You know, we could say that 90% fewer cows by... 2035 but say you know we're saying 90% fewer that still leaves a lot of cows but they'll be spread in certain regions perhaps where they're still relying on cows or they have the cow value so you know cows will still exist but the way that we use cows especially in kind of the western world is just not going to be needed. Now along with all of this disruption and uh, the potential downsides the economic benefits um, the the loss of of maybe the availability of certain types of food at least uh, temporarily there are some major potential benefits to this disruption and this shift. Talk about the environmental benefits of having 50 or 90 percent fewer cows. Yeah, so I mean, in terms of land, greenhouse gases, water usage, this is all going to be, you know, massively decreased the amount that you need for these kind of closed network systems. So environmentally, you're going to see these huge benefits in terms of greenhouse gases emitted. Um, and that it goes through as well into everything. So for example, like 90% of the world's, 80% of the world's antibiotics, I believe, are used in the livestock industry. 
And there's obviously a huge issue with kind of antibiotics um, in the world. And if you're not using all these antibiotics in livestock, then, you, you know, it leaves more for us to use as humans. Um, and then, yeah, kind of like runoff of things like fertilizer, which obviously happens because a lot of the issues environmentally that come from kind of cattle is just to do with the overuse of hormones, the overuse of things that ends up in the environment. And this just won't happen in these closed network systems. So, I mean, it's, it goes even beyond kind of the big ones in terms of climate change and global warming. And it goes kind of right beyond down to kind of more local, you know, issues that people may be seeing to do with kind of the, the output of waste and um, issues with kind of cattle farming. Well, Catherine Tubb, in this analysis uh, that you're a co-author of, um, you do present this pretty dire sounding, you know, warning about the demise of cattle farming and, and other uh, livestock. But then you also say that our food system, quote, will be more nutritious, healthier, better tasting, more convenient with almost unimaginable variety. Can you leave us with a little bit of that optimism and what you envision the, I guess, eventual upside of this disruption and this transition being? We'll be able to make any type of food we want or our body needs. And when you kind of couple it with all the oncoming transitions you see in health as well, the ability to have personalized, customizable nutrition to us will be incredible. You'll be able to have like food as medicine, anything you want to eat that exists or doesn't exist. The, the number of different proteins that are around the scarcity should be gone because you can just make anything, any variety of food. Um, and, you know, we're right at the beginning of this at the moment and everything is getting better. The cow cannot get better. We're at the limits of the ability of the cow to get better. But this food is right on the cusp of possibilities. Does this mean we're going the way of food pellets? I mean, are, are we getting <laughs> down to food just being very utilitarian uh, when we're producing it all in the lab in this food as software way? Or, or how do you see that playing out? I mean, food is a very emotive subject for a lot of people. It's very subjective. So I think how we all consume food will continue to be the varied way. But perhaps, you know, remember, we eat food three or more times. We're lucky enough in the Western world to eat three or more times a day. And so it may well be that the, that just shifts a bit. You know, perhaps suddenly you're getting your nutritious, you know, cube of food from your local um, pret type sandwich shop once a week but that's still enough to impact things perhaps you know it's, it's just how we it, 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 how we how you know generally you'll still probably have your turkey at christmas or your turkey at thanksgiving sorry you're american <laughs> turkey at thanksgiving but generally you know generally how we eat food can change and will change as as part of this big continuum of food eating that's Catherine Tubb. She's a senior analyst with Rethink X, a think tank that focuses on tech-driven disruption and its implications for society. And she's co-author of a new report on the future of food and agriculture. Catherine, thanks. Thank you. Up next, an economist weighs in on the right amount to spend on holiday gifts. Living Lab Radio continues after a short break. <laughs> Welcome back to Living Lab Radio. I'm Heather Goldstone. Black Friday 2019 was a record setter. In-store sales were up 4% over last year, and online sales jumped 14% to more than $7 billion in one day. That's a lot of gift buying. But is it too much being spent on gifts? Joining me with some thoughts on that is economics researcher Jay Zagorski of the Questrom School of Business at Boston University. He has written about the economics of gift giving for theconversation.com. Jay, welcome to the show. It's lovely to be on the show. 
So at this point, we have not only Black Friday, but also Cyber Monday. And then you mentioned two others, Super Saturday and Panic Saturday. Tell us about those. Uh, Panic Saturday is the last Saturday before Christmas. And uh, Super Saturday and Panic Saturday are basically the same uh, holiday. Uh Uh-huh. (laughs) <laughs> I don't know if I would call that a holiday. <laughs> it's that moment when those people who haven't gotten their gifts just before Christmas all decide they all have to rush either to the stores or online to get that last minute something. I wonder, Jay, as a researcher, why study holiday shopping and, and holiday gift giving in particular? I mean, obviously, it's it's a big part of uh, the economy of, of the bottom line and revenue for a lot of these retailers. But Does it tell us anything more about ourselves or our society more broadly? I would say it's important as an economist to study holiday gift giving because this is the one time of year when people basically spend not only on themselves but on others. And when people are feeling good about the economy, they spend a lot on both themselves and others. When people are feeling poorly about the economy, they spend much less. So if you're looking for a leading economic indicator of how the economy is doing, Gift-giving is a great thing to look at. Well, maybe not so much even how, how the economy is doing, but how people perceive the economy to be doing, how they're feeling about the economy, exactly, right? Exactly, exactly. So, Jay Zagorski, the question that you have answered or, or, or set out to answer in this piece you've written for theconversation.com is uh, one that many of us wrestle with every year, and that is, what is the right amount to spend on a gift or or maybe overall on the holiday? How do you even start to, to answer that question? Well, from a high-level point of view, a lot of people want to f- spend sort of the right amount of money. What's the right amount of money? The amount of money where they don't look too cheap or they don't look too generous. Um, we don't want to give gifts that are way above what everyone else is giving. Conversely, we don't want, for social reasons, to give gifts that are well below what other people are doing. And There are actually data sets that track how much money people give in gifts. And one that I used was from the Bureau of Labor Statistics. It's called the Consumer Expenditure Survey. It interviews each year between 12 and 15,000 different families and asks them about spending on all kinds of things. And in particular, it has a large number of categories for gifts. And it has categories for electronics, books, clothing, even non-holiday gifts like transportation, housing, and medical care. For example, say a grandparent might want to give braces to a grandchild or something like that that would fall under medical care. And so what kinds of trends have we seen in the cost of gifts that people have been buying? Is it just that the costs of goods are, are going up you know, with inflation or, or is there actual, uh, are there actual trends in, in the kind of levels of gifts that the people are buying? So there are actually a number of surveys beyond this consumer expenditure survey which looks at how much people spend. Uh, In particular, Gallup poll does a survey of holiday gift spending, the National Retail Federation, and even Deloitte, the consulting firm. And overall, gift giving has been going up over time for roughly the last 10 or 15 years, but it's been going up only slightly more than the rate of inflation. So that people are giving, after adjusting for inflation, roughly the same amount of money uh, in gifts. So we're not getting more generous over time, unfortunately. We don't seem to be getting more generous. (laughs) But in particular, what I was trying to figure out is, is there a simple rule of thumb that somebody could say to me, how much roughly should I be spending on gifts? Not exactly what gifts should I get, since that's a much harder question. But what should my total budget be? And the Consumer Expenditure Survey shows that each year, 
the typical family spends about 1.8% of its after-tax income on all kinds of gifts over the whole year. And you can then break the numbers down, and I eliminated a number of categories that typically are not given as holiday gifts. For example, typically at the winter holidays, people don't give uh, medical things or uh, housing as gifts. Uh, so eliminating all those things comes up with a relatively simple rule of thumb. And the rule of thumb, give about 1% of your after-tax income each year in gifts, and you're right in that sort of sweet spot. You're not being viewed as too cheap. You're not being viewed as extra generous. Hmm. 1% of your total income on the winter holidays. I mean, you talk about in this piece that you've written, Jay Zagorski, in addition to kind of the total spending when you're thinking about what you're buying, also these ideas of, of things like buyer's remorse and, and something you call dead weight loss, that in fact, a lot of these gifts that we're buying, you keep mentioning, you know, you want to look generous, you want to seem not too cheap, that we seem to be doing a lot of this gifting for kind of social posturing reasons, which <laughs> in the end ends up meaning that a lot of the gifts that we give essentially immediately lose value. They're not valued necessarily on the other end. No, they're not valued. Uh, one particular survey found that unwanted gifts at the winter holidays uh, is about worth $13 billion in the United States. Wow. Yeah, $13 billion. That's, that's quite a bit of money. Uh, and I'll be honest, I've gotten some gifts that I've not particularly valued and I've either re-gifted, uh, and I won't say what in case the person who gave me the gifts is listening to this interview <laughs> uh, or returned. But there are other gifts that are really greatly valued even more than by the purchase price. So in particular, gifts typically fall into two categories. Um, one set of gifts, people value far more than what you paid. It's when you find that perfect gift and somebody looks at it and goes, wow, I never would have bought this gift for myself, but this is something I've always wanted. And then there's another set of gifts that we as economists call the deadweight loss of Christmas. It's basically the, why did I get an orange sweater, you know, with Santa Claus <laughs> on it? Uh, I can't believe you spent any money or even time on this. Uh, so I'm not saying don't buy gifts. If you really do find the gifts that somebody appreciates, they can be very valued, much more than what you spent. Uh, and in particular, though, not every gift is valued for the dollar value you actually went out and spent on it. You know, I'm, I'm listening to you say this and thinking, you know, I've seen books in the past few years, things like The $100 Christmas, um, which is actually encouraging people to set a total holiday budget of $100, not $100 per person um, or $100, you know, for your whole family. Um, and... Then on the other hand, we we hear increasingly about things like minimalism and, you know, the rise of Marie Kondo and maybe giving experiences or things that aren't items. But that's not necessarily cheap. That that can actually be quite expensive. So we, we've kind of had, you know, advice in, in the general uh, gift giving realm going in two really different directions in, in, in the recent years. Well, in general, when people give gifts, they want gifts that are remembered for many years. And this idea of giving experiences, uh, oftentimes the literature shows the experiences are more valued. They're remembered far longer than physical things. Uh, my family, we've had this problem for many, many years. And in particular, uh, I don't really like shopping for gifts. I find it very stressful and uh, a number of other people. And we found sort of a simple way in the holidays to handle this. Uh, we give gifts to the children. But adults, we basically just give wrapping paper. 
And then after we all eat, we have the family paper fight. So we move the children out of the way and they all sort of look on kind of like what's going to happen. And we just sort of crumple up all the wrapping paper and we throw it at each other. Uh, and we end up with an experience that's relatively cheap. Uh, and the children also get, you know, they don't feel left out because they got their gifts and they look on with horror as the adults start dumping boxes of wrapping paper on each other's heads. I love that idea, although I have to say there's a little part of me that is still a little kid that still wants to get at least a few gifts a few times a year. I don't want to give up all of my gifts, but um, but I hear you with the, you know, the paper fight. We actually once uh, gave one of our sons when he was a toddler uh, a roll of toilet paper and an hour to do anything he wanted with it uh, for his birthday present when he was about a year old. And it was um, definitely a memorable experience. Overall, what would you... I guess, recommend to people who are trying to figure out how to actually give memorable gifts to the people they really want to give gifts to, um, but, you know, keep costs down, keep this within that 1% budget that you were recommending. Uh, That's a hard question, especially for an economist, because as an economist, we study money, but we don't actually study, you know, how to optimally give particular gifts. But in my own life, uh, my advice is just watch a person, watch what they do, and watch any problems that come up in their life. And if you can give a gift that solves a problem, typically that's a gift that will be remembered. That's Jay Zagorski. He is an economics researcher and senior lecturer at the Questrom School of Business at Boston University. He's written about the economics of gift giving for the conversation.com. Jay, thanks so much. Wonderful. Have a nice day. Until next week, this is Living Lab Radio. I'm Heather Goldstone. Thanks for listening. Living Lab Radio is produced by WCAI in Woods Hole and WGBH in Boston. It's produced by me, Elsa Partan, and Heather Goldstone is executive producer. Theme music by Stellwagen Symphonette.